We're going to jump into our message. And today we are closing out with the city pillar. And I want us to rethink and reframe that pillar because I think there's a lot of confusion around it. And I would not be, I would be being dishonest to say that my view of the city has shifted over the last 12 and a half years. Um, And it is also true that we as a church have had to adapt to the unbelievable changes that we have been confronted with in this city. And so, um, so this is a, this is a unique, uh, a unique pillar that has been the source of more upset than probably anything else Door of Hope has done. I've gotten more angry emails over this pillar in the past, and I would be lying to say that, um, that my calls for people to be committed to the city have at times been so uh, so strong uh, in, their, in their presentation that I actually met a couple last night at a wedding who went to Door of Hope for three years but said, yeah, we, you told everyone that if we don't live in the city to please not come back. So we didn't. I'm like, yeah, that seemed to be effective, didn't it? And I'm really sorry. You're welcome to come back now. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, we get it. We get it. It was a long drive. It was a hard thing. And like, but but I, I, I've been really thinking through this. And, and I, wanted, I want us to explore it. Because I think that when Door of Hope began, I was deeply influenced by multiple thinkers. And it was around a time where there was a real renaissance in urban ministry. Um, and also my, my natural temperament that is always been drawn to urban environments. When I was a kid, I just wanted to live in the city. Like, I mean, I spent every weekend in high school in Portland. Um, I moved to Seattle the moment I was old enough to do so. I lived there for 10 years. Um, I, and I was always too small. I wanted to live in New York. My son just moved to LA. I mean, I'm an urban person. I've given birth to urban kids. And there's a, there's a, there's a love of, of, of urban realities um, that has shaped some of my views that I think at times I've almost tried to create dogma out of my own personal taste. And, and that's not healthy. Um, so I want us to rethink it. So this is the title of the message, Life in Babylon. <laughs> so we're not building the city of God, friends, in the city of Portland right now. Uh, and we have to ask the question of what is the purpose of the church in the city? I want to just begin with this quote from Jacques Ellul, who has truly become one of my favorite authors. He passed away in 1993. Um, This is a quote from 1948 in his book, um, uh, Presence in the Modern World. Uh, And he says, Christians can always strive to do good works and exhaust themselves in religious and social activity, but this will signify absolutely nothing if they do not accomplish the one mission that Jesus Christ charges them with specifically, to be first a sign. And I think that this is a profound statement. And here's the thing. I may have thought idealistically, but practically speaking, this actually has been the conviction that I have held to from the beginning. When Door of Hope began, I had this this desire to engage the city with the gospel. And I remember meeting with pastors and they were like, you're in Portland. You got to figure out first how you're going to serve the city. If you want to bring the message of the gospel to the city, the city has to see that you are here to serve it, to improve it, to make it a better place. 
And I was like, huh, so what are you, like, what are you suggesting? They're like, you know, cleaning up schools, doing community gardens, all these things. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing any of those things. I'm going to live in the city, which by nature will make me care about the city I live in because it's my neighborhood. And I'm going to try to live close to the church because I want to actually participate in the community that I'm serving and preaching in. And I want to buy my groceries here. And I want to meet, the, meet people that own businesses. And that was my MO. But when it came to like a big emphasis upon social uh, engagement as the primary purpose of Door of Hope, that has never been our primary thing. So if that's what you've come to Door of Hope hoping that is going to happen, that's it's never been what we're about, and it's, it's not going to be what we're about. Not that we don't engage. We, we are called to care for the orphan and the widow. We are deeply engaged in, in homelessness and uh, in multiple ministries, uh, faithful friends, uh, um, in Pregnancy Research Center. I mean, there's, there's a ton that we're doing um, in engagement in the city. These are ministries that we partner with, but we believe the primary responsibility of the church is to be a sign that points people to the living Christ. And so what I want to ask us today, because if you are like me, one of the things that caused us to lose people last year was that a lot of people started moving away because Portland became too much, because the idealism that we were holding to uh, wasn't holding up, that our presence in the city wasn't making the city better. And, and we were shut down for so long um, that, that we saw... Uh, and I would argue, I'm going to get into this, is that I actually believe there's a mysterious passage in 2 Thessalonians that talks about the restrainer being removed. And when the restrainer is removed, the lawless one will be revealed. I believe the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, and I believe that the Holy Spirit restrains evil through the church's presence um, as a sign to Jesus. And the church literally was removed out of the scene in Portland for like a long time. And I am not shocked by the result of that, which I just want to tell you guys right now that if there is ever a call to close down church again, I will not obey that law. I just want you to know that. Um, uh, because, because I believe, I believe, and it's not that I want to be cavalier, I care about life. Life is terminal. Everybody dies. And we shouldn't be cavalier about that, and we want to care for our neighbor, but we need to understand what essential services are, and being able to worship together is an essential service to human existence and flourishing. And the fact is, is that people are coming now after a year of just see, feeling the weight of isolation and the loneliness and the desperation and looking for hope. And Door of Hope is not offering hope if our doors are closed. And so this is a deep conviction of mine that I, I believe that we need to pay attention. And we just didn't know. We'd never experienced anything like that. But looking back on it now, I believe that there was a, there was a removal of the restrainer in a way. Um, and, and I think that this is what we have to understand when we look at the city as it is right now. I mean, it is a, it is a hard thing to see a city in the 90s all the way up through the early 2000s. Portland was continuously touted as it was always back and forth between Cincinnati and Portland as the best cities in the United States to live in. It's clean, it's beautiful. We've always had a higher homeless population than most cities. Part of that is because we offer more services. People can get more food here, they can do all sorts of things. So Portland's also always been a very progressive city um, and that has its own underbelly. And so Portland, like everything in the world, is mixture. But 
sometimes the dark side of the mixture becomes more and more prevalent to the point where it almost feels unbearable. And I think that what this last year and a half has taught us is that we do not have very thick skins and we don't handle difficulty well. Pastors have bailed on congregations throughout the city because they were eaten alive by all of the political unrest, the racial unrest, um, the, the pressures from, and, and let me just say, congregations were not helping their pastors when they forced their pastors to try to pick sides within the community. And it, one thing, I was more than willing to lose people over anyone trying to get me to pick a side because my responsibility is not political. I stand firmly and fervently in the position that Jesus did not care at all about politics. When he was, said, when he was asked about taxes, he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. And what did he, what did he show, follow up with? Go pull this fish out of the river and in the fish you'll find the coin. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It's like Jesus is saying, this is what I think of this. I'm going to give you a crazy miracle just to show you that this is not what I'm here for. And if we thought he was, if he came to be political, uh, that's exactly why the Jews wanted him dead. Because the Messiah, in their mind, was going to be a political ruler that overthrew Rome. And Jesus is like, no, I came to save the world. And so this idea of, of, of splits within the church and in infighting and the and this and you look at evangelicalism it's not a surprise that we have become kind of the the bane of of american culture or or deeply villainized when the church thought that its primary responsibility is to protect itself from those crazy pagans out there as i said last week the greatest threat to the church always comes from within the church the greatest endangerment to Christianity is Christians. That has always been the case. And here's the thing. I was just talking. This guy calls me from, from California this week. He's a retired police detective that does prison, does prison ministry. And I'm not joking. This is like, I talk with people all over the country all the time. And I can't tell you how many times I've had friends from more conservative parts of the nation be like, dude, how are you guys doing with all that Antifa? I have never seen an Antifa. I don't even know what an Antifa is. I think it's an exotic animal that I'm not even sure exists. I mean, if you mean kids dressed in black doing dumb crap in our city, okay, I accept that. But, it, but I don't know what Antifa is. Um, it's like, it doesn't even make sense to me. And I haven't seen it. And I live in the city. But what I have seen is this city gone crazy over the last year and a half. I've seen it destroyed by, by vandalism and trash and homelessness where we're not helping those that have nothing by allowing them to have camps that create massive drug use. I wanna see the homeless helped and cared for. I was meeting with Lawrence the other day, a good friend here who goes out and actually serves a part of a thing called search and rescue where they go out and bring actual food and bring the gospel and relationships. That's the kind of meaningful ministry that our city is not doing for the homeless. By letting them have a home but not providing them with any sort of mental, mental health care, providing them with shelter, we're not, we're not helping them. And I want us to be rethinking what it means to be living in a time that is a, a, it's a battleground, not a playground. 
And Portland was a playground when Door of Hope began, and it's not anymore. It's not. And I think that this is one of those things where I have had my idealistic romance with urban snobbery blown out of the stinking water. Um, I know it feels like a betrayal as the pastor who did become known for reducing the church in a single week by 200 people. But it's nothing compared to the 700 we lost last year. And I think that this is something we have to take into consideration. I told the other pastors, I'm like, don't keep a multiple services going to present to the, to the world that you still, your church is still like what it was before COVID began. We need to be honest about what's happened and it's okay because God's still in control because God is doing a shaking and he is going to shake away all that is unshakable until only that which is solid <clears throat> remains. And this is what the purpose of the church is. Portland, like every major city, is Babylon. Babylon is a place of confusion. It's a place of what man can do apart from God. And man is capable of amazing things apart from God. Um, but we need to remember that this is what we are dealing with. So how should we think about the city? The verse that has been traditionally used to push people toward this idea of helping the city flourish comes from passages like Jeremiah 29, verse 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. So God speaking to Israel, the nation, and says, listen, I have brought you into exile. Why were they in exile? Because they were being rebellious. Because they had become idolatrous. Because they had turned to the gods of the surrounding lands and had abandoned the living creator God Yahweh and God allowed them to be carried off into captivity but then he promises that he will not leave them there his judgment is also corrective and there is a there is a restorative quality to that judgment but he says hey while you're here in Babylon in this fallen place he says seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile but what's the purpose for it is it because of his care for is it because of his care for the city that they are carried into exile or is it because of his care for them? Well, it's both because God loves the world. But we need to understand that this is a practical thing. It's, it's a call to, to not do things that are going to disrupt God's purposes in a place. See, I often think that the issue isn't social movements in, um, that come from the church into, into urban environments. There's nothing, we should always strive to do good. We should always strive to treat everyone as our neighbor, to love people well, to care for people well. The two commands that are interwoven, as we considered last week, that cannot be separated. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor is whoever is in front of you, behind you, next to you at any given moment in the day. That's the reality. But what we must recognize is another quote I share with you from Jacques Lul that I think is so true. It's two realities that cannot be separated from one another. We cannot make the world less sinful, nor can we accept it as it is. These two facts are immovable facts. We are not getting the world ready and making it a perfect place so that Jesus can come back. Doesn't mean that we don't care about it. This doesn't mean that it's all gonna burn anyway, so who cares? And I've, I've heard these arguments like, this is why we have to care for the city. Well, listen, the purpose is, is that we want to live peaceably. And I think that the Romans 12, 18 gives us a New Testament perspective for it is dangerous to take passages like Jeremiah 29, 7 or, or in Jonah when it says, 
when God says to Jonah, who's been the reluctant prophet, who has run away from God's mission to bring, the, bring a, a warning of coming judgment unless Nineveh turns and repents, Jonah runs because he hated the people of Nineveh. He didn't want anything to do with them. God forces him to go back to a city that he hated and preach the gospel, but then he's bummed that God actually brought redemption to this place. So he, he, he flees wishing he was dead. And at the very end of Jonah is one of those strange verses that, that people that believe that we can make the city flourish kind of cling to as like, this is the verse, the proof text of a theology of the city. And, it, and it's, should I not care, God says to Jonah, about such a great city as Nineveh where there are more than 120,000 people that do not know their right hand from their left. And they have so many cattle. Why is that there? Why does he care about the cat? I don't understand. I think we're going to spend the rest of the sermon just exploring why would God care about the cattle? <laughs> no, the point is, is that this is a powerful picture of that God is a redemptive God and he is sending us as reluctant people into a broken world. The point isn't that God loves Nineveh as a city. And you see no evidence in the New Testament ever of God's primary concern, other than Jesus' words about Jerusalem, you never see anywhere in the New Testament that God seems to have a deep focus upon location. There are letters to churches in local places, which means that we can't say we're a part of the big C church and not be a part of a local church. But his primary concern is not the salvation of this or that city or this or that town. His primary concern is seeking and saving that which is lost, which is humanity. When it says God so loved the world, it doesn't, it actually encompasses the word cosmos, but we know what is meant by the world by what follows, for whosoever. And a tree is not a whosoever. A building is not a whosoever. A town is not a whosoever. The city is not a whosoever. It's the people that are found in those places. For God so loved the world, that is, my dad Alexander who lives in a cabin in rural Sterling, Alaska. For God so loves the world is God so loves Ian who's sitting in the third row here that you've been hearing preach. God so loves the world means that he cares about you. And he cares about the people of this city. Like he cares about the people of every place in the world. Because this is what God is doing, reconciling the world that is humanity to himself through Jesus. And this is a powerful thing for us to understand. So when we talk about, if possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, is that we want to do all that we can to not push people away from what we're actually here for, which is to be a witness to Jesus. So we don't use our service of the city as a replacement of our proclamation of the king, but we want to make sure that we aren't living in such a way that our proclamation for the king is not listened to because we're such horrible people living in the place. Does that make sense? And so I think that it's a, it's a much simpler thing than, than what we have turned it into. I think the attempts to turn the city into a theological grid um, as something that's actually redeemable is, is problematic on multiple levels. And this is something that I've come to as of recently. Um, so what does the city actually represent then? Because we do need to understand what we are dealing with. We need our eyes to be wide open. 
Because I know many people are daydreaming right now about what it would be like to live other places. I'm, I've talked with probably a dozen people that have left Portland, left Door of Hope, because they can no longer handle being in this city. And I've, I, just talk, I just met with a couple that were deeply involved in Door of Hope for a long time. They just moved to rural Montana. I have two young men that just moved to Bend, Oregon. Um, I mean, there's... A, a, all over the place. People are moving. Friends that moved to Sandpoint, Idaho. I mean, another couple that just moved to Alaska. I get it. They're beautiful places. But let me just say this. The peace that we are so ardently seeking will not be found anywhere on this planet, on this side of eternity. The kind of peace that Jesus offers is not respite from the difficulty. The kind of peace that Jesus offers is he frees you from the need to be free from the difficulty. The peace that he offers is a peace that comes to you in the midst of the difficulty. It's a peace that comes to us in the midst of the struggle. And if we don't grasp that, we are going to lose our minds because this Sydney is maddening. It's maddening. You know what's really hard for me, man? I used to say, I love Portland. I would say that. And I actually would be deeply offended. I might have even possibly let someone go for not loving Portland. What do you do when you come to the place where you're like, yeah, I don't really love Portland. I don't really love the city. That's exhausting to me. I'm bummed when I drive around the city. I'm bummed when I see it all the way that it is. I was talking with a good friend who's here today. We're just like, we love the city and then we're sad at what's happened to it. Um, and that's okay. And that's, that's right, and we can, we can admit that. But I do love the mission of Jesus, and I do feel called to the city. And so I say, before I pack my bags, I always say, like, I don't want to pin myself down in case God ever does let me move to the Puget Sound, which I'm really praying that he will give me that freedom eventually. Um, <laughs> uh, but, I, but I do want to say that, that before we try to escape, what are we trying to escape to and what are we escaping from? Because one thing that we cannot retire from is the mission to be a signpost to Jesus. And I will say that the tune has changed because I do believe that we need to be a sign everywhere where there's people. Um, so what does the city represent? Well, here we see the first time a city is mentioned in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, people never notice that there's two Enochs. We think of Enoch as the one who walked with God and did not see death. But here, the first Enoch was actually the one who was born to Cain. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence. Remember, Cain was cursed for killing his brother Abel. And he lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. God promised to not kill, um, allow anyone to kill Cain, but Cain was, was abandoned. I mean, was basically pushed out um, from his community. This is Cain made love to his wife. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. So I think that this is, a, this is something that you, you should understand is that right here, the city becomes something that becomes a refuge from God for the glory of man. It is a city not dedicated to God, but it is dedicated to the son. It is a dedication of one who, is, who has been pushed who, who is broken covenant relationship with God, who is now apart from God, apart from God's community, and is now built something with his own hands, his own genius, and he gives the honor not to God who created him, 
but to the one who came from him, his own son. But I think you go further and you look at Genesis 11, the trajectory is fascinating. Then they said, come, this is, this is a, the, the people gathered. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. And this place becomes what is known as the Tower of Babel. And Babel is a word that literally means confusion. And God says, let us go down and see what man is doing. Because together with one language, there is nothing that could stop them. They could do almost anything. This is one of the great pictures of what the city always is. It is an emblem of the genius of man. It's the ability together to create and to conquer and to build. You know, as we just celebrated the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, I want you guys to think about where you were. Some of you maybe were so young you don't remember, but I remember it was a month before Henry was born. You were in middle school. And, 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 and when I walk, I remember my, I got a phone call. My wife wakes me up in the morning, and she's like, hey, honey, Dylan's on the phone. And Dylan was this guy that I just led the Lord. First guy I ever led the Lord. I was a new Christian. And, and Dylan, <laughs> I'm like half asleep. And he goes, it's happening, man. It's happening. I'm like, what's happening? He's like, he's like we're at war. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, our country has been attacked. I'm like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, turn the television on. And I turned the TV on. And the first plane had just crashed into the first tower. And I was like, I mean, you know when you're just so tired and you're like, Am, is this even real? I mean, we watch so many disaster films. I mean, it, I don't know, if some of you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. It didn't feel like you were watching something real. And then the second plane hit the tower. And then within 47 minutes, the two largest buildings in the world, the highest. Now, there's lots of buildings that claim to be the tallest building in the world that are taller than, but they have spires on them. The World Trade Center, I went up in it. You could get on the top of that thing. And it was insane. I mean, the height, you feel the whole building move. I mean, it's just, it was wild. I went up on it in 1996. And uh, I mean, it is a profound accomplishment. But what was the, the reckoning that occurred in that day was that the World Trade Centers were the representation of our own Babel our ability to build to the heavens, our ability to make a name for ourselves, our ability to be the greatest, most powerful nation the world has ever seen. Our ability, and it's, think about where it even stood. It's, it was the heart of Wall Street, the, the, the source of America's wealth. And it was reduced to rubble in 47 minutes. And what we don't understand is that this is the reality of man's ability to build, is that it doesn't mean that it's going to last and we have to understand that is as the islamic nation that came against america in those attacks and said this is the great satan america what they didn't understand is that they were functioning under the influence of satan against a city that is under the influence of satan because the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one and these are his kingdoms which we'll consider in just a second I think that the, the, the problem that we have to understand, and I've seen this in myself, is that I love cities because cities represented to me 
what I am capable of doing that wasn't acknowledged in the rural. I, like, I can go to the city and do something unique. I can, be, I can be a musician in the city. I can't be a musician in Longview and make anything happen. I went to the city only to discover that, yeah, I can't really make myself a great musician in the city either, but that doesn't matter. We try. It's the, it's the gathering together of talent that creates this movement that we are all drawn to. But it's also the thing that creates problems. Think about Portland. We have more strip clubs per capita than any city in the United States. More, more than Las Vegas. Did you know that? That we have the highest... This is so depressing. Oregon holds the highest depression rate. Then We hold the number one... We get the booby prize for being the most depressed state in the entire country. I, I wonder why too. And I think I, I think I know why. But you know what the number two most depressed state in the U.S. is? It's West Virginia. Number three is Maine. You know what the two least depressed states in the United States are? It's actually three. California. What? It's the weather. <laughs> Hawaii is number one. It's the least depressed, of course. Uh, and uh, what was it? <laughs> New Jersey. What? <laughs> How is that even possible? <laughs> Has anyone been to New Jersey? I like New Jersey. But if you've gone to Asbury Park, I'm like, this is wrong. This cannot be possible. But it is the Garden State. So, yeah, whatever. Uh, but, but we live in a place that for all of our progressiveness, for all of our all of our, um, all of our you know, su supposedly forward thinking, we're not a very happy place. And that takes its toll on us. And a part of that is because we need to rethink the idealism that causes us to believe that we can somehow make this place less sinful. And, and, and I'm not trying to be a downer here and saying like, hey, listen, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. What I am saying is that we can't be surprised. That's the great Eugene Peterson statement. If we remember that people are sinners, we won't be surprised when they sin. It's why we need to be here. So that we can be conduits of grace in a place that's hurting. And it's why so many people are coming to faith right now. Which is why Portland is such an exciting place to live. It's an exciting place. It's hard. It's discouraging. And there's much about it right now that I do not like. But I love the gift that it is to be able to be a conduit of the gospel. To see people find hope in a place where they are hopeless. To, find, to see people come to know that they are loved on their worst day where they don't feel love. That is what drives me to stay. This is why I went back and began to read through and I'm like, oh my gosh, there is never a place where the city is ever really presented positively in scripture because wherever people gather sin abounds but wherever God's people gather grace abounds and this is why we need to be here and this is why we need to be together how can we how can we be a part of God's search and rescue mission if we aren't here and this is why there is a unique call and I'm not saying if you don't live here or you've been called somewhere else that this is this is not a guilt trip uh, this is really more of a call of like, what are we trying to achieve with our lives and are we a part of God's greater mission? 
Whose city is this? Well, I already hinted at it. Look at Luke chapter 4, verse 5. The devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all authority and splendor, all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, if you are here as a visitor or, you, or you've not wrestled with or you're here because you're trying to figure out what it is you believe or you don't know what it is we believe we want you to know that just as we believe there is a god in heaven who is is a triune god one god three persons father son and spirit that jesus is the son of god incarnate who has come in to the world taken humanity into himself and has dealt with our broken nature what we call sin but we also believe that there is a spiritual reality and that there are spiritual beings that are working against god and we call it the devil and the dominions of darkness and if i would say this before i believed in jesus i believed in the devil because there is evil that is so personal it's that famous statement it seems like there's someone in the universe that's laughing at us or toying with us. And in a place like Portland, there is, I have dealt, I used to be kind of skeptical about spiritual realities, or at least I believed in them intellectually, but I hadn't experienced them personally until Door of Hope began. Um, and, and this is a city that I think is a stronghold. Uh, for spiritual realities. Well, one of the things that scripture declares, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. Um, he talks about, once again, if you look through the gospels, you'll see that Jesus is constantly interacting with people that have demons. And it's the demons that actually are the ones who know who he is and what he's there for, but long before his disciples do. And that there is this spiritual battle going on around us. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against principalities and the darkness and, um, and the rulers of this age. And that, that it is a darkness. And I think that that's one of the things that we have felt in this last year and a half is we've seen that there is a, you peel back the veneer of what feels like this playground and what's under the surface is like a David Lynch movie, which Lynch is the master. If you guys don't like David Lynch, I understand. He's a little dark. Uh, he's very dark. But what he loves to do is take idyllic places like Twin Peaks, this beautiful mountain town in Washington, and then under the surface of what seems like an idyllic place, there is all this darkness that is at work. And I think that this is truly the picture of what we've experienced. And we shouldn't be surprised by it because when Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world, Jesus does not argue with him. Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is the ruler of all, he does not deny that Satan has temporarily been given reign. It's why Luther says that very confusing and almost feels disturbing when he said, uh, he said, Satan is still the Lord's Satan. And all he meant by that is that Satan still has to function within the parameters and he is a defeated foe because of the cross of Calvary, because on the cross, Jesus defeated sin, the dominions of darkness, and death. But it doesn't mean that he's not still active. Defeated means that he has received a mortal wound which makes him even more dangerous. 
Again, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, it says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, when Jesus is speaking um, to the churches, he says this to Pergamos. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. So we need to understand that we are dealing with the kingdoms of men that are under the persuasion or the influence of a demonic realm that is at play to hinder God's mission on the world. It shouldn't be surprising that these things compounded are going to create all sorts of challenges for us as believers. If this is Satan's city, how then do we respond and how do we act? Can we change the city? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says this. It says, and you know what is restraining him now, that is evil, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now, here's the thing. I, I have come, this, this passage is a prophetic passage looking toward the very end of time. Um, and there is this picture that... It, First John gives us this, this, this picture of the, what is called the Antichrist, one who comes as, as literally a savior of the world uh, and presents himself as a savior of the world, deceiving many. Uh, and in, in actuality, he is one who is, is in, in service to the devil, appearing as some kind of Christ figure. Now, throughout human history, there have been many people. In fact, uh, John says... Up till this point, the spirit of Antichrist has been seen. But when, when he comes in full, and I think that there are great figureheads in history that seem to be evil personified. Hitler was uniquely a man who personified evil. Mao, Stalin. I mean, 20th century was filled with a lot of serious evil leaders um, that I think personify what the scripture is pointing at when it talks about the spirit of Antichrist. But what's fascinating about this passage is that there seems to be, though we can't make the city a better place, we're not going to turn this kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is something that is not mixed with. It is something that invades and ultimately conquers and that city is coming in the future it's true that we started in a garden and the story ends in a city but we should never compare the city the jerusalem the heavenly city to anything that we've experienced on earth and i think that right now we are kingdom outposts we are to be revelations of what is coming in full in places that are still in enemy territory and so this picture that we have here, when we ask the question of can we change the city, we have to believe that this, this fact that we are dealing with right now um, is that the spirit becomes a restrainer against evil. Things are bad, but they are as not as bad as they could be. And we have the ability to bring good and joy and peace and love in the midst of it because that's the kind of peace that Jesus brings to a fallen world. Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary. And keep in mind, Jesus was speaking in a time where that kingdom, the kingdom of Rome, was dangerous. And many, many Christians lost their lives for the refusal to worship at the throne of Caesar. And we need to understand that Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, 
that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. He said, follow me. And he never said where he was going because it doesn't matter as long as he's the one that's leading. And where he was leading them was into places where they would experience death. And so I always like to say, and I used to say it a lot in the early days, and I've kind of moved away from it, but I want to bring it back. When someone asked me, what will it cost me to follow Jesus? I would be lying to say anything but everything. It costs us everything. Jesus said to his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love, love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now guys, if you're experiencing the hatred of the world because of your love for Jesus, that's a biblical reality. What I'm concerned about is Christians experiencing the hatred of the world, not because they're representing Jesus, but because they're playing the games of the world. Because they're picking sides, because they're being the victim and calling someone else the scapegoat, because they're entering into the things of the world in such a way where they're using the name of Christian, but in actuality, they are not reflecting the sacrificial reality of Jesus himself. And therefore, we are hated for the wrong reasons rather than the right reasons. The interest is not being hated because we're obnoxious. The interest is not being hated because we cloister ourselves and point our finger out at those pagans out there, all those Antifa folk, um, when in actuality all of us have the ability and do act upon the reality of sin each and every day, which is why as a community of faith, our power in the gospel is our unwavering ability to confess, I am a sinner who has been saved by grace. God, if he can save me, he can save you. And yes, I'm going to blow it, but I'm going to speak it out when it happens. And I'm going to do it in community. And I'm going to continually tell you that on your worst day, Jesus loves you. This is the power of the gospel played out in a place that's still under the dominion of darkness. Because what Satan wants you to do, if it's his kingdom, is he wants us to live in the false belief that we can be our own gods. And that the best way to live is to hide our brokenness from one another. Because it's about survival of the fittest. But that's not how we are to live. And this is why I want to close with how can we as a church be a sign in a city? Well, it's, there's three metaphors, and I'm totally borrowing from Jacques Ellul, so I give him all credit for this because I thought, found it so profound. Um, salt, light, and sheep amongst wolves. We don't generally add that as a simile for the church, but we're going to today. First of all, salt. In Matthew 5, verse 13, Jesus says to his disciples, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. We need to understand, first of all, that we are living in a time, and I agree with the Lul, that actually it is more difficult to be a Christian today than it was 2,000 years ago. And there's a reason for this, and it's due to the technological age in which we live in. It's the globalization. It's the eradication of boundaries, really, between nations. That it is commerce that runs the world now. And we are all infected and in, um, in impacted by it. I saw a tweet by Mark Ruffalo this morning around this idea that, um, that a big report that just released that, that Facebook, uh, or excuse me, Instagram is feeding into increased depression and suicide amongst teenage girls. And it, Ruffalo just said, do better, Zuckerberg. 
But that's the problem is that sin has become increasingly collective. Our brother's sin, our sister's sin is our sin. Because we can't escape it. It's, it's in our face 24-7. We are so tied together at this point that it, it never was okay for me to be, those people down there are doing all these bad things in the city and I don't have anything to do with it. No, we are connected, interconnected. We are our brother's keepers. And we need to understand that, yes, every person is responsible for their own actions, but a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Remember, Israel lost its battle to I because of the sin of one which means that sin is collective. It impacts the whole group. And, it was, and, it, and it's this, it, that's why I believe a communal response of continual repentance, a turning from the ways of the world back to the living Christ is the way that we free ourselves um, and begin to live victoriously in the midst of this collective brokenness that we find ourselves in. So to be salt of the earth refers specifically to Leviticus chapter 2, Verse 13, and we're told that the salt is literally the sign of the covenant. And it means that Christians stand before humanity within the world's spiritual reality as a visible sign of the new covenant that God has made with the world in Jesus Christ. Which is what means when we think of salt, what does salt do? It is a restrainer. It preserves. It preserves against total decay. And we are to be a preserving reality of God's grace in a world that is dying for preservation, (laughs) that is dying for salvation. That we would be a constant conduit of of, of God's loving action in Jesus as a sign to him. And I, I think that this is such a beautiful thing because salt of the earth is the primary way by which Christians are involved in the world's preservation. Much more than... Than, than any material activity is that we are continually pointing people to the only one who can bring newness to their life, that can bring restraint to their unrestrained desires. Isn't that what we're told the Holy Spirit does, is that he brings self-control? He brings restraint. He brings preservation. He brings life. But the second second. Uh, metaphor that is used, and it's more than a metaphor, it's a reality, is that Christians are the light of this world. We're a light in Christ. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. There's a city of sin in the hill. It cannot be hidden. So don't hide your light under a basket, but let your light so shine. And this is really interesting. He connects being light with good works. He says, let your light so shine that the world may see your good works And bring glory to God. And glorify God. Notice that we we shine, we let our light shine in a way that doesn't draw glory to us. But it is a direct redirecting, a redirection of of focus onto Jesus himself. And this is a beautiful picture for us. Because when you think about what light does, what does light do? Well, we just talked about it, that the city is something that is under the kingdom of Satan. And the kingdom of Satan is a picture of darkness. What does light do? It dispels darkness. In fact, a single match can illuminate an entire room of blackness. It doesn't take much light to illuminate a space. One lamp can light up a whole room. 
And I think that this is a, a picture of what, what we are to be. We are to, we are to provide essentially to the world what the criterion is for goodness that we are to illuminate darkness and this is what the light reveals is also the light that conceals and I think that as we point people to Jesus this is why people run from Jesus because it is difficult to come into the light because the light reveals what we are but as we show the world what it looks like to calmly come into the light and be exposed we are also at the same time communicating what it is that needs to be exposed, what it is that needs to be repented of, and what it is that God comes to free us from, which is our self, which is our sin. And this is the power of the gospel. In another sense, I, I, I like what Alul says about light. He says that light actually of the world gives meaning to the world's history. This is a really interesting statement because we don't think about history this way. History is consistently being revisioned right now. And it will always be revisioned because I just finished a book that's, on, that's part, part memoir. I can't even get my own memories about my own childhood straight. I get in battles with my mom about how things happened and when they happened and what was said. And I realize that she's always wrong and I'm always right. <laughs> but, the, but this actually speaks to me about how quickly we should be willing to just bite into Everything that's stated about, you know, when you have a guy like, um, uh, what's his name, um, uh, Aslan Razan, that writes a, writes a book that becomes a, a New York Times bestseller on who Jesus really is, and it's just a revisionist history built around a bunch of subjective ideas written about a time that he didn't live, a time where no one from that time is alive any longer, using resources written by people that no longer live about a time that no longer lives, interpreting a time that no longer exists. This is the problem with, human, with the human mind. We are so convinced we know, but we are so much stupider than we think and smart. We're really clever at convincing ourselves that we're not that stupid. And the fact is, is that we weren't there. I love what Chesterton says, like, look at all the information there is on prehistory. I want you to think about the word I just used, prehistory. What does that mean? It means a time when there was no history, and yet we are given thousands upon thousands of books about that time that there is no history for. So what we are trusting is the creative mind of a fallen human giving us information about something they know nothing about. It's not that we aren't capable of speculating. We don't know what color dinosaurs are. We don't know. We don't have their skin. We only have their skeletons. I think it's kind of sad that they're always gray. Why can't they be colorful? Mine are colorful. Like Barney. That person was thinking, right? <laughs> the light of the church actually puts illumination onto the history of the world. We are pointing people back to the central moment in which time itself turned the corner. We illuminate the truth because we are in a time right now where truth is turned so far upside down on its head and subjective emotional experience, the narrative is the most important thing. I understand how powerful it is even when I share personal stories, how quickly I can utilize a personal story as a rhetoric device to 
push your emotions a particular direction. We have to be aware of these things. The church is to be a pillar and ground of truth. And the light of the gospel illuminates the truth of what it means to be human and to remind the world of what it means to be human. I love this. He says this is why as Christians, by being a light, are a factor in the world's life. In addition to their work of preserving the world, Christians are instruments of revelation and bear witness to salvation. What a powerful statement. Finally, as sheep among wolves, and this will be the least popular and we will close. (laughs) Here again, Christians are the sign of the reality of God's action. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Notice what he says. I am sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. But we live in a time where everybody wants to be a wolf. I mean, wolves are more appealing. I haven't thought to tattoo a sheep on the side of my neck, but I did get a wolf. It's actually a fox, but it kind of looks like a wolf. And I think that this is the thing, is that in the world... Everyone seeks to be a wolf. It's the, it's the dominance. It's the, you see that movie by Scorsese? It's really dark, and don't, I shouldn't say I saw it, but The Wolf, wolf of Wall Street. Um, and I think that this is, this is essential for Christians to guard against being wolves spiritually. If you guys have followed all of the, the headlines, the, the podcast, like the Mars Hill story, or like this is the conversation right now in the church is leaders being wolves. Leaders being spiritual wolves. And it's not just doing things that actually disqualify them. It's just doing things that keep their position safe and secure where they are allowed to continue to dominate. The danger lies actually even in the fact that I am elevated above you. Physically creates a sense of dominance that we have to fight and combat constantly. This is why I'm having you hear from Ian regularly and we want to continue to raise up voices because we don't want to grow the church around me or Ian. We want to grow the church around Jesus and we want to plant more churches and we want the community to gather together in oneness as the sheep who represent the lamb who was sacrificed before the foundation of the world. And what this means for us is that we are not to be spiritual dominators. We do not strong, strong arm people into the kingdom of heaven. Christians must accept others' domination over them and daily sacrifice their lives, reflecting in this way the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is what we're called to be in a city like Portland. We may not be able to save the city, but we can be good citizens in it who bring, who leave behind marks of goodness and kindness and love, who participate in the city because we care about the people who are here. And we care about it because we live here. But our primary goal is to be a sign that points people to Jesus, which means that it will be a combination of both word and deed. But it has to flow out of a heart that's surrendered. You guys, Jesus loves the people of this place. And I believe that he loves the people. And I want to apologize for the, all the times that I, I went too far and allowed my own snobbery to, like, to basically make it feel like anyone that didn't live in Portland proper was living in some second-rate place. Because I really have daydreamed about living in boring Oregon as of lately. I drove out there as this cute little craftsman. I'm like, I'm doing it. I don't even care anymore. I'm doing it. But I didn't. Um, <laughs> but the fact is, is that 
I just want to see Portland's changed. People can't even afford to live here anymore. So we need, to, we need to be thinking about, I want to just reach people. And if that means we plant Door of Hopes in Vancouver or beyond, I don't care anymore. What I care about is the gospel going forth as powerfully and as quickly and as conscientiously as possible so that as many people can meet the living Christ because we are a part of God's great rescue mission in a world that, whose story is coming to a close and we will be one day meet him face to face. And I don't know about you, but I want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And what I'm grateful is that even if it wasn't that well done, I can still trust that because of his grace, I am accepted. And so are you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for the ways that you love us. And I pray in this time that we would take into our hearts and consider the truth of who you are and the truth of the place in which we live and that we would engage in our city in a way that brings your gospel. And yes, Lord, that means that we live peaceably. That means that we serve the homeless. That means that we, that we do pick up the trash. It does mean that we care about these things, but all of these things flow from the central desire, which is to point people to you because we could clean up all the trash, we could fix all the wounds in the city, but if they do not have lasting hope, which comes from the gospel, it doesn't mean anything. The world is past saving through mighty philanthropists. What it needs today is mighty evangelists. And I pray that we would be bold in our communication of who you are because we know that we are loved and that same love has been poured out in our hearts where it is hard to not see people with your eyes. Lord, we want to see those around us with your eyes. Give us love for our neighbor. Give us patience. Forgive us for being impatient. Forgive us for creating an us against them mentality. Lord, we are your people and you have called us to exist for the good of those outside of your church. And so we pray that we would truly be a place where people find hope. And I pray over this community that there would just be a strengthening, a boldness, a capacity to love in a way that they have never been able to before because it is you working in us and through us. We need you, we love you, and we thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. It's in your name we pray, amen.